Today we're continuing a sermon series called I Undeserved This as we look at God's grace and the amazing message that we will get nowhere else in the world. We pray that by this series, the goal of this series, you might say, is to have grace permeate every part of our lives. I think it's a tendency in Christianity to treat God's grace a lot like we treat a printer driver. You ever done this? You get a new printer, maybe at home or at work, and you go online to the website and you download the driver, but you know there's one more step, right? It's not enough just to download the driver file onto your computer. You need to install the file so that the printer can actually work. And I fear that sometimes Christians take grace and treat it a lot like a printer driver. We download the information. We know Jesus Christ died for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we can go to heaven someday. But that's where it stops. It's simply information. It's intellectual understanding, but it's not life change. It doesn't work through every aspect of our life. Maybe a good way to test yourself and see if this is happening is if you see Christianity as primarily an intellectual exercise. Is the thing you like to do in Christianity just to learn, to hear more, to understand more? Or does it, does it permeate every part of your life? Do you look at every relationship, every conversation, every moment as in some way influenced by the concept of grace? Do you see all of what we do on Sunday as valuable? Or do you just see the sermon as valuable? Because it's, it's the part that's intellectual for you. Do you hear that amazing message of forgiveness from God, and does it stir your emotions a little bit? If it does, then you've installed the printer driver. But if it doesn't, then, then maybe you once again need to hear how amazing God's grace is. And I hope that you will today as we go through two parables that are actually part of a longer section that we're going to go through for the next two weeks. Luke chapter 15 has three parables in it, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Today we're just going to go through the lost sheep and the lost coin. Next week we'll go through the lost son. But all three of these again show Jesus' amazing grace to us. Now the big idea for today, if you're taking notes with us, is that repentance leads to rejoicing. Repentance leads to rejoicing. So the first two parables from Luke chapter 15, I'll read them and then we will talk about them. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God 
over one sinner who repents. This is God's word. So we've said multiple times in this sermon series, and I'm sure we will say it again, that in order to understand Jesus' parables, you have to understand the context into which the parables are told. We've seen this all the way through the series as we've gone through Jesus' parables. Understanding the context gives new light to what Jesus is saying and why he's saying it. So let's examine the context of this parable before we go through it. Luke tells us right away that the tax collectors and the sinners were there. They were gathering around to hear Jesus speak. Now last week, if you were here, you know that I told you what tax collectors were in that culture. They were essentially the dregs of society, the extortioners, cheaters, unfaithful people. Basically, nobody liked the tax collectors. We also get introduced to this new category of people. We're called the sinners. Uh, Sinner would have been a sort of colloquial term for somebody who was engaging in public sin. They were sinning in a way that everybody could see. So, as an example, jealousy is a sin, but most people can't see your jealousy, right? But they can see if that jealousy leads you to steal something. Well, stealing would be a public sin, a thing where where people can see what you're doing. So these people who were called the sinners, they were those about whom the culture knew they were doing something repeatedly wrong. Now, last week I also said that that these are the type of people that the gospel attracts. And so I wanted to ask you again, do we have these type of people in our church? Do we have people that you can look at and and say you know a big sin that they committed? Can you look around the room and, and look at people who are insensitive, who hurt others, who have at one time torn down your reputation, have been impatient, unfaithful to you? Are those people here? If we're preaching the gospel, they should be, right? If we're preaching the same message that Jesus was preaching, then the same type of people are going to be attracted to us that were attracted to Jesus. See, what we see time and time again is that the people who love the gospel the most are the people who have realized how morally bankrupt they are. Water tastes best when you're thirsty. Food tastes best when you're hungry. The gospel tastes sweetest when you realize you have nothing to offer God, but that God is doing everything for you. If we preach the gospel, we are going to attract this type of person. The outcast, the misfit, the ragamuffin. They're going to come to our church. And I think for a lot of American Christianity, that's not okay. Like, we want our churches to be neat and tidy, ducks in a row, everyone gets along, everyone's friendly, things work. If that's the type of church you want, it's actually really simple uh, what you have to do to accomplish that type of church. Don't preach the gospel. Because if you preach the gospel, these are the type of people who are going to show up. But that's the, not the only group of people who are there. Uh, the text tells us that there were also Pharisees and teachers of the law who were gathering around Jesus. Last week I talked about Pharisees, that they are kind of the professional class of lay Christian. The teachers of the law would have been a new category again. They're like a pastor. 
They're the ones who study the scriptures regularly. They instruct people in what the Bible says. So this group of people, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, they're also there, and the text tells us that they're muttering. You can imagine the scene, can't you? Jesus is preaching his gospel message, and off to the side there are these teachers of the law and Pharisees saying things like, this man, they won't even say his name, welcomes sinners and eats with them. The word I want you to focus on there for a second is mutter. In the Greek, the word is literally to complain out loud or to grumble. That's what those Pharisees and teachers of the law were doing, saying to each other, this guy, (laughs) he likes those types of people. But I wonder if we couldn't describe ourselves as mutterers sometimes. Do you think that's ever us, our congregation? Complain out loud, grumble? Maybe it's about music, how the music sounds, who's doing the music, what the songs are. Maybe it's about the leadership team, who's on it, the decisions that they're making. Maybe it's the pastor, who he is or what he's doing or how he dresses. Maybe it's the the sale or rental or keeping of a certain property. Maybe it's a ministry plan or a program that we keep or we don't keep. Do we ever grumble about these things? I bet I can show you that it's the exact same reason that causes both our grumbling and the Pharisees' grumbling. You can see it in what they say, right? This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Well, what's the implication of what they're saying? He shouldn't do that. He should do it with us. Why? Well, because we've earned it. We're faithful. We know the scriptures. We're here every day. We've been here for years. We're well-behaved people. We think about this stuff all the time. Jesus, you shouldn't spend time with those people. You should spend time with us. Isn't there anything left for us? Don't you care about us, Jesus? I think very often we are, the sim- in a, we are similar to those Pharisees and teachers of the law, aren't we? We're concerned about what matters to us, the things that we're doing, the things that we value. Instead of seeing exactly what Jesus sees when he sees those tax collectors and sinners, people who need him who he is willing to sacrifice anything to be with and to talk with. This attitude, we, we talked about it last week. We said that it's self-righteousness, right? And self-righteousness has an amazing, amazing, uncanny ability to separate people. And so I wonder if, if in our congregation, if we want to grow, if we want more people to come in the door, if self-righteousness isn't going to be the number one obstacle that happening. And just like the Pharisees and the the teachers of the law, right? There was a barrier between them and between these people who were attracted to Jesus' message. We can have the best laid ministry plans. We can have the most talented preacher. We can have the best music. We can have professional slides and beautiful publications, and the seats can be comfortable, and everything can be right. But if a person walks in the door hoping to find forgiveness and sees a whole bunch of people who don't feel like they need forgiveness— They're going to walk right out. Because we aren't offering what they feel they need. See, the the parable is told to both these groups of people. And I want to show you how that works. That this same parable, because Jesus is a master storyteller, is going to hit each of these groups of people in a different way. 
So if you're taking notes with us, that's the next fill in the blank. These parables are for the sinner and the saint. The person who thinks they're pretty good. The person who thinks they're pretty valuable, who thinks they aren't that bad. They don't need that much grace. So first, let's talk about how these parables would have hit the Pharisee and the teacher of the law. Jesus tells a parable about a man who has a hundred sheep, and he loses one of those sheep. And he says to the Pharisees, if you were a man who lost, a hundred, or lost one of your hundred sheep, wouldn't you go find it? Wouldn't you leave the other 99 and go find your one? Now, the metaphor of a sheep and a shepherd is a little bit lost on us because we're not exactly an agrarian society. So let me try to put this in our terms for today. Uh, Livestock would have been like your investment portfolio. They were your assets, right? They were not necessarily financial, but they were valuable. And so if you had 100 sheep and you lost one of your sheep, that's 1% of your investments. So let's say you're you're looking at your portfolio or you're looking at your bank account, and all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, 1% of that value is gone. Now, maybe that's not a huge number. Maybe it wouldn't cause you to panic, but you would, like, track it down, wouldn't you? You'd at least send an email to the bank. You'd at least make a phone call because 1% of your net assets is gone. So Jesus says to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, if you guys lost 1% of your assets, you'd go find it, wouldn't you? The answer, of course, is yes. Then he tells them another parable about a woman who had 10 coins and lost one of those 10 coins. She turns the house upside down to try to find this one silver coin. The silver coins that Jesus uses in the parable are called drachma, which would have been about equal to a day's wage. So, you know, calculate that out. Minimum wage for eight hours a day. How much does that cost? Well, this woman has 10 of these, right? But there's another layer to this because Jesus tells us specifically that she's a woman, which in that culture meant that she couldn't own property, So those 10 silver coins in her hands, those were her worth. And so she lost one of them, one of 10, 10%. So again, put it into our context again. All the money you have is in one bank account, and you look at that bank account, and all of a sudden, 10% of it is just gone. Wouldn't you turn your financial house upside down to try to find that 10% of your value? So Jesus is asking the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, if you had that much loss, wouldn't you go and find it? The answer, of course, is yes. Then Jesus tells another parable, which we're going to go into more detail next week about, but it's the parable of the lost son. And Jesus again asks the question, if you lost a son and he came back, wouldn't you be overjoyed that you found him? I mean, a son is more valuable than a silver coin or a sheep. The answer, of course, is yes. So what's Jesus communicating to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? He's saying to them, in a thousand different ways, you will track down all the stuff in your life that you have lost. You'll move things, you'll ask questions, you'll do what's necessary to find things you've lost, except when it comes to the thing that Jesus loves the most. Because Jesus loves lost people. And so it doesn't make sense that, that you would track down these things but not want to track down the thing that, that I love most. Why was it that they weren't tracking those people down? Well, you heard, they're sinners. 
They're tax collectors. Jesus, they're lost causes. They're not worth your time. And Jesus is essentially saying by these parables, exactly. They're lost causes, which means they need someone to save them, which is what I'm here to do. Jesus' message to the Pharisee, if you're taking notes with us, is that they don't love the lost. They see lost people as problems, as obstacles, as annoyances. And sometimes I wonder if we don't also. If we don't look at certain people and say, it would be so much easier if they weren't around. It'd be so much easier if I didn't have to spend time on them. But Jesus says, if that's how you're going to operate, that, that just doesn't make sense. If you're willing to track down the things that you've lost, why wouldn't you want to track down the things that I value that I've lost? But the Pharisees weren't the only ones to hear those parables today, that day. There were also tax collectors and sinners. So let's examine what they heard. Jesus tells a parable about 99 sheep left as the shepherd goes to find one. And even though the text doesn't say it, I can imagine that as he tells that story, those tax collectors and sinners started thinking of themselves. One lost all by itself, isolated, singled out, different from everyone else. Sounds like me. Aren't many people who have sinned like I've sinned. Aren't many people who are tax collectors like I am. It would have been easy for a tax collector or a sinner to feel like that one sheep And to think probably there's no reason that a shepherd would hunt me down. I'm not worth much to society. Those 99 others who don't need repentance, who don't need need saving, they're worth far more to society and to the church. But Jesus says that that man tracks down that one sheep. He says he's willing to go out of his way to reschedule his life to find that one sheep. Jesus says very clearly to those tax collectors and sinners, even though many people in the world don't operate this way, I operate this way. Like if Jesus was in a cost-benefit analysis situation, we would say he was terrible at it because he would leave all the good things that he has in order to find one thing that is lost. Some commentators make a big deal about the 99. Are the 99 the glories of heaven that Jesus left? Are the 99 other Christians? Are the 99 representative of something else? I think there's an answer to that, but let's not get there yet. Let's just understand the bigger point, that Jesus is willing to leave something very valuable to find something that the world perceives as not valuable. Where most people tried to reschedule their life so that they wouldn't run into a tax collector, Jesus rescheduled his life, and not just his temporary life on earth, but his eternal existence in order to be in the lives of those tax collectors and sinners that day. Then he tells a parable about a woman with ten coins, one of which she lost. And he says that that woman turned her house upside down to try to find that coin. And in doing so, he teaches the tax collectors and the sinners, I'm not willing to just go out of my way. I'm willing to completely upend reality in order to find you. I'm willing to change the course of human existence. I'm willing to step in as God in human flesh to this sinful world and absorb all the sin into myself like a sponge so that I can find you. 
what Jesus says to the, to the tax collector and the sinner as our next fill in the blank if you're taking notes. So Jesus loves the lost. He sees the lost as infinitely valuable, even though many in the world would not. But there are a couple more details, two more details, that I think we need to work through in order to understand this parable. Uh, the first of those is rejoicing. In both parables, Jesus says that the man who finds his sheep calls together his friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. And the woman who finds her coin does the same thing, calls together her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. Now again, put this back into our context. You find 1% of your net assets or 10% of your value. That's a reason to be happy. It's probably not a reason to throw a party, though. Like, maybe you text somebody and say, hey, this thing happened to me, super weird, but it turned out okay. But you're not inviting all your friends and neighbors over and throwing a huge party. But Jesus would. Jesus would throw a a huge party whenever he finds something that he values that was lost. Now, this has huge implications for us. Because if Jesus is the main character of this parable, who are the friends and neighbors who he gathers around to celebrate with him? Well, the text says that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels in heaven. So at least the angels are included in this group of people who are celebrating with Jesus. But I want you to take this one step further. Because Ephesians chapter 1 says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms right now. Because by faith we are connected to Jesus. Because we take his body and his real blood into our mouth with bread and wine, we are connected to him we are inextricably tied to him, and where he is, that's where we are also. I wish I could preach a whole sermon on this, and maybe I will someday, but have you ever thought about the fact that the Bible says we are the body of Christ? Not that we're like the body of Christ? Very often, I think we take those body of Christ metaphors and say, or make them into metaphors, excuse me, that I'm like a hand, or I'm like a mouth, or I'm like an eye, or an ear, or a foot. That's not what Jesus says, though. He says, you are the body of Christ. Just like he says, take and eat, this is my body. So who is in heaven celebrating with Jesus when a lost person is found? You guys. Now, it's the weird not now, but then reality of being a Christian, that you are still living here, and yet you are seated with Christ by faith. But the truth is, when a lost person is found— That's something that we celebrate. When Jesus does his work of bringing someone to repentance, that's a thing for us to gather around and rejoice with him over. And the implications are thick for our congregation. Because very often, I think, we think repentance and bringing people to repentance and bringing people into our church is our work. And sure, we participate in it, We are the mouths that speak the words. We are hands that do work. But ultimately, it is Jesus who brings those people into the church. The parable says he's like a man who tracks down a sheep and doesn't say, here, sheep, come here, come here. No, he grabs the sheep by both legs, swings it over his shoulders, and walks back to where it's supposed to be. It's Jesus' work. And when a sheep wanders from the flock, is that the fault of the other sheep? No, it's the fault of that sheep. 
And whether that sheep is found is between that sheep and Jesus. So what does this mean for us? It means we're free from a, from a solid resume when it comes to bringing people into our church or keeping people in our church. If people come, it's because they listened to Jesus. If people leave, it's because they didn't listen to Jesus. That's what the text says. And that's really freeing for us. We're just an outpost of the gospel, a bunch of mouths that speak the truth of God's word and allow the Holy Spirit to work when and where he wills for the good of his church. This church might exist in 150 years. It might not exist more than five more years. That doesn't matter. We preach the gospel, and God works when and where he wills. Jesus brings people to repentance, and we rejoice over it. Is that how we operate? Is that how we think? The church is all about Jesus? Or is it all about us? I hope you know that it's all about Jesus. In fact, I'm going to force you to write it down in your bulletins next. But if we lose that, then we lose the way that Jesus talks about repentance. We lose the fact that this is Jesus' work, not ours. It is his grace, not ours, that saves. And the next part I want you to get out of this parable is that Jesus says this is about repentance. I think I've heard this parable preached maybe 10 or 15 times, and just about every time, it's preached as either mission work or pastoral care. And I hope to prove to you in a couple minutes that neither of those are the correct interpretation of this parable. On the one hand, it's preached as mission work. We as a church, we should go find the one who is lost. We should leave behind the 99. And then it's also preached as pastoral care. This is how pastors operate. They leave the 99 to find the one who is lost. But here's the problem. This parable isn't about you. And it isn't about me. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus bringing people to repentance. Now let me be clear. Does that mean that we are not going to reach out to people who are lost in our community? Does that mean that I, as a pastor, am not going to work hard to find people who are wandering from the faith? Absolutely not. But I am going to understand that repentance is something Jesus is going to work in their heart. Now, the Bible talks about repentance in, uh, in two ways. It's two parts, if you could say it that way. Uh, then the next fill in the blanks if you're taking notes with us. The first is that repentance is contrition. Contrition is a word we don't use very often, but it's essentially the feeling of guilt over your sin. Uh, that feeling that you're not living up to God's standard, that you're, you're falling short that you're messed up, that you're a failure in some way, that's contrition. Contrition is not something you drum up inside yourself. It's something that happens to you, right? You usually don't feel guilty about something until somebody points out that it's wrong. The same is true with Jesus. Contrition is something that Jesus works in your heart when he shows you very clearly what God's standard is and how you're not living up to it. The second thing the Bible says that that repentance is, is faith. Faith is simply believing that Jesus has forgiven your sins. That those ways that you haven't lived up have been fulfilled by Jesus. And that Jesus' credit has been given to you so that when God sees you, he sees perfection. That's also something that Jesus does. The Bible says that the sinful mind is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law, nor will it do so. That's Romans chapter 8. You understand that? Like, by our sinful nature... 
We don't want to go to God. But even if for some reason we wanted to, we couldn't do it. The only way that we get faith is that God gives us faith. He gives us the words the Bible says in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing the message. So if repentance is contrition and faith, then it is something completely that God does, right? And this flies in the face of what I think repentance is sort of generally thought of in our society. Like, repentance is my choice to leave my life of sin. Jesus is, uh, I'm giving my life to Jesus now instead of giving my life to those sins. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says repentance is something God works in you, and that, my friends, is really good news. It's really good news. Because it means that it doesn't depend on you. It depends on the completely faithful, completely kind, gracious Savior who came down as human to die for our sins. And it's already done. Like, it's not waiting for you to find it. It's already done in your heart. This word is coming from my mouth and working by the power of the Holy Spirit on each one of you right now. Repentance is happening. God is doing it to you. Praise Jesus. Jesus says that these parables are about repentance to help us understand that Jesus tracks us down. Being a Christian is not about us. It's about God working for us. The entire message of the Bible is that God is for you even though you don't deserve it. God is saving you even though you daily act like you don't need to be saved. God is pulling you into repentance even though you'd more often rather go your own way. God acknowledges you even though you look for acknowledgement from a thousand other places that are infinitely less valuable than him. God is selfless even when you're consumed with selfishness. God is generous even when you're filled with bitterness. God is loving you even when your spouse or children or siblings or parents or friends don't love you anymore. God is choosing you even when you feel like no one will. God sees you as beautiful in Christ even though others see you as a problem in their life. God is fighting for you even when you feel like you're going it alone. God will catch you no matter how fast or far you run from him. God's love for you is mugging in nature. Jesus comes after you to find you. And even though you may give up on you and others may give up on you, Jesus never gives up on you. That's what Jesus wants you very clearly to understand in this parable. Now that kind of repentance is something to rejoice over. If you're taking notes with us, that's our last fill in the blank. That repentance is something to rejoice over. Obviously, in the text, Jesus tells us that there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents rather than the 99 righteous persons who do not need repentance. Who are those 99 righteous persons? Well, it might be easy to think that they are the Pharisees or the teachers of the law that Jesus is sort of jabbing at, but that's not true because he says they're righteous. And the only way to get righteous is by having faith in God. And, and people who don't need repentance are the ones who have repented, which would disqualify the Pharisees and the, tax or Pharisees and this, and the um, teachers of the law. So what Jesus is telling us is that the rejoicing happens when one sinner repents rather than 99 righteous Christians who are already repenting. So I challenge us to rejoice over repentance. To have an attitude that is celebratory when a new person comes in here 
and sees this message as true. When a person who is already here is in a sin and and confesses that sin, if we can have that kind of celebratory nature about repentance, we will be a place that is full of joy because tax collectors and sinners are being found. If we're going to call ourselves a Christian church, then we better preach the message that Jesus preached, which was repentance. It better be the word that is most often on our lips, the goal of every conversation, the calling card of our congregation. If it is, then we'll be standing with Jesus, and he will find many people. And he'll bring them into our congregation and entrust us to continue to give them that message. So let's start with us, and then let's preach it out there. If we do, it will unify us. You know those 100 sheep that Jesus was talking about? One wandered off and, well, created disunity, right? But let's push Jesus' story a little bit farther. What if 20 go this way and 40 go this way and 40 more go this way? That's disunity, isn't it? And maybe you're feeling disunity in in your family, in your community, in your nation, in your church. How does it get solved? The shepherd goes and tracks down the sheep. And so if we want Jesus to track down sheep and bring them into a unified body of believers here at Cross of Life, then let's continue to speak his words. Let's continue to repent and receive repentance from other people and forgive them. That will unify our church. Let's pray about that. Lord Jesus, continue to work repentance in our hearts. By the power of your word, convict us and then release us by the power of forgiveness. Bring the scandalous nature of the message that you, God, would die for our sins to our lips regularly. That there's no pretension, no self-righteousness, that we see ourselves as the lost who need to be saved first and foremost before we step out to tell anyone else. I ask that you make these things not just a downloaded thought in our brain, but the operating principle by which we live every moment of our life. I ask those things in your name. Amen.